Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? Good. Hey, those of you sitting in the new VIP section over here on my left. Hi. Good to see you. There used to be a wall right there in case you guys didn't notice or, or if you're new. So uh, glad you guys are here this morning. Working through the book of Esther. Just started this last week. I don't know if, if there's anyone else in this room. I have read this book, and I don't mean this you know, boastfully or whatever, I bet over the last 20 years of being a Christian, I mean, probably a dozen times or more read this book of the Bible, and I've never done a deep dive on it. And, and I have been, of course, because we're teaching it. And it's been really, really interesting. I don't know if any of you who've taken the, the, the steps to, to really dive into the culture and the history and I think a lot of times like movies and Hollywood and you know, pure flicks and Lifetime make stories like this just very surface level. And it's really not. It's a lot more complicated and, because people are complicated. And this story, I've, I've been really intrigued by it. And I've, I've covered a couple of different commentaries that have very extreme views on it. And I'll actually go over that a little bit today and kind of present some of those views and, and um, kind of let you decide where you land on that. But what, what I am finding, and we'll talk about this a little bit today. Well, let me tell you what we talked about last week if you weren't here, and then I'll talk about what we're gonna talk about today. So reading a book of the Bible like this that is 2,500 years old, this particular one, it's very easy for us, especially in our culture and our day and age, to, to, to step back and, and kind of be judgmental over the people in these circumstances, you know, because we're, we're, we're so much more evolved than they were back then, and I mean that sarcastically, but when you actually read this book and you take out the things that, that they struggled with and made mistakes with and compromised on, it's all the same struggles that we have today. We think we're so much more advanced because we hold a piece of technology in our hand or something, but, but, but we're not. People, people are still very, very similar to what they were 2,500 years ago. So we read chapter one last week, the story of, of a guy named King Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes. And, all the men know who that is because of the movie 300. And um, we talked about Xerxes and he had this massive party to, to kind of show off his wealth and his power and his influence. For six months, he partied and showed off everything. And on the other end of his palace, all the women were having an equally as debaucherous party as the men were on the other side. And after they get done with the first big party, they have a second party, everyone's invited. And at the end of the second party, Xerxes says, hey, someone go get my wife. One of my assistants, go get my wife. I want to parade around my most prized possession, you know, my trophy wife. Go get her. Let, let everyone see how hot she is. Let her walk around and let's objectify her and everyone will be jealous of me. And she says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then we see that he's outraged by this. He doesn't want to admit that it was, a, it was a problem with his marriage, so he makes it into a legal matter, and they pass a law that, that no one is to treat their husband like this, and they're going to exile the queen, which more than likely meant that they had her killed and disposed of. And that's what we kind of talk about in chapter one. But from this, we talk about the dangers of excessiveness, right, of gluttony, excess, the dangers of pride, the dangers of fear, the dangers of being irresponsible, the dangers of hypocrisy, all things that we can fall to if we are not careful, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus. So we kind of pulled it out of that culture and brought it into ours today. Today, we're gonna to talk about this. And, and I'm gonna tell you where I am with the book of Esther. I'm reading this and I'm trying to let the word speak for the word and I'm using commentaries, but I'm trying to stick to the word as much as possible. And again, it is much more complex than what I initially thought. And it's very easy for me, Corey, to judge what I would do in these situations. And so what we're gonna talk about today is 
that we cannot compromise our integrity. If we claim to be Christians, we cannot compromise what the word tells us to do. That's, that's off the table, we cannot compromise that. But we also have to learn as people who know the truth and hold on to a relationship with God, that we must love people. We must show grace and mercy and empathy and not just treat people like they're enemies or projects, right? But we're to love them like humans. So we're gonna try to strike that balance or talk about that balance a little bit today. So you should've got a notes handout. Everything I'm gonna say will be in there. If you have a Bible, we're right after the book of Nehemiah, which will actually play into uh, Esther a little bit today. Right before the book of Job, you have this book about this uh, 14-year-old girl that's put in a really, really interesting situation. And we're gonna go over chapter two a little bit. If you have the app, click on sermon notes. Everything is right there. And um, everything will be on the screen, so we should have everything ready to go, okay? I think you'll find chapter two interesting. Chapter three and four, I think you'll find extremely interesting as well. We'll do that next week, but... Let's pray, let's dive into this and, and we'll have some fun with it, okay? Father, Lord, we love you. God, I thank you so much for this church. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room. God, as we study your word today and, and we read about these situations, I, I, I pray, Father, that it brings us closer to you and that you bless us, God, for getting into your word and studying it. We don't only pray for our church this morning, Father, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. Lord, we pray for the wonderful nonprofits that we're working with this month that do very, very important work with foster care. And your word says that we're to take care of the widows and the orphans, Father. So I pray that our church literally step in and help take care of the orphans and, and help take care of people that need us, God. Lord, we love you. And we just pray that as we study your word, not only is it a blessing to us, God, it's a blessing to you. And we pray that it brings us closer to you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down. And, and um, yeah, pretty interesting. Here we go. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and they did accordingly. Okay, so sometime later, between chapter one and chapter two, four years have passed. So it was quite a bit more time later. In those four years, what was going on during those four years is Xerxes raised up an army. Xerxes and Ahasuerus, same person. Xerxes raised up an army because the Greeks were becoming a threat. That's actually what the movie 300 was about in a very you know, fantastic manner. But anyways, so Xerxes raises up an army and they start to war with the Greeks and they lost quite a bit of battles to the Greeks. They wouldn't lose ultimately to the Greeks until about 100 years after this when a guy named Alexander the Great came in and conquered the Persians, but we're not there yet. But they had lost some, some battles. So Xerxes comes back to his massive palace Right, This is the most powerful, influential, affluential man on planet Earth at the time, but he is feeling very selfish and remorseful because he just got his butt handed to him a couple of times, and now he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a wife because he more than likely had his previous wife killed, but he's having this pity party, okay? 
So his assistants, these eunuchs, see that he is having this, this pity party and they feel, they feel bad for him. Probably more than likely they're just scared of him. So they devise a plan. They say, here's what we'll do to make everything better. We'll go round up all the beautiful young virgins in the empire, and these were young teens. You're talking 13, 14, 15-year-old girls. We're gonna go round them up, and we'll find a new wife for Xerxes. So there was this year-long process of finding these women, making these, basically putting them through like a beauty school so they smell good, look good, wear the right kind of makeup, know how to dress to turn on the king. And all of this, was to fulfill the king's very perverse sexual appetite. That's all this was. So it's interesting. What we see here is something that we have a tendency to fall in the trap of today. And what we typically do, a lot like King Xerxes, though maybe not as extreme, is when we have discontentment in our life, instead of running to God, who is the only thing that can give us contentment, we try to patch that discontentment up with worldly pleasures, and typically it just leads to more discontentment. You guys know what I'm talking about this morning, correct? See, what we do is we find out that one of our girlfriends just got divorced, and instead of spending quality time with her and getting her plugged into a good Christian counselor or a church or you know praying with her, we take her to Nashville, get her wasted, and get her hooked up with some dude for the night. And that makes everything better, correct? Until the next morning. But it's not just with extreme things like that. I mean, we're, we're, okay, listen, guys, we're, all, we're gonna have to be super honest this morning. We're all prone to doing things of this nature. And I'll just go ahead and throw it out there. I'll confess something to you guys just for the sake of authenticity and, and honesty. We used to do three services on Sunday at this church. Now we do two on Saturday, two on Sunday, which is much easier than three on one single day, in my opinion. We used to do a nine o'clock and 11 o'clock and then a six o'clock at night service. And the six o'clock service, pardon me, sucked. Not that we sucked, but a bunch of people came, not as many as the other two services, but people would come and they were not plugged in at all. It was a lot of people like from other churches and they were checking it out, they didn't wanna commit. And so you couldn't get people to serve, you couldn't get people to give, you couldn't get people to bring other people to church. This is why we got rid of that service. And so what happened was every single Sunday, at the end of my weekend, right, and teaching three times, I always left really depressed because the, the Sunday night service just wasn't very good. And so to get to my house from here, I have to pass a Kroger and I would swing into that said Kroger and I would pick up like a pack of like, you know, like a 12 pack of Ding Dongs or Twinkies or whatever. <laughs> I would go to my house and I'd put on like an 80s horror flick, right? And I would eat the whole dang box. <laughs> me confessing to you, and there's new people going, this guy shouldn't be a pastor. I'm just being honest with you. So as I'm shoving, you know, Twinkies down my gullet and, you know, Michael Myers is chasing someone down the street, um, it hit me, this is not a healthy way to cope with this, right? I should do something better than this. Now, I wasn't getting drunk and cheating on my wife, but I was trying to pacify discontentment by a means that wasn't healthy and it wasn't of God. So I had to correct that. But we have a tendency to deal with symptoms and not get to the root of the problem. A lot of, all of us in some way have a tendency to do that, okay? So let's move on. Here we get to meet Esther. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon took King Jeconiah, 
of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther. Because she had no father or mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace and to the supervision of Haggai, the keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. This is important. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each woman's turn to go to King Osuharis, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh and for six months and then perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to the second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shaashgaz, keeper of the concubines. Those are basically prostitutes. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. So what we do is we switch scenes. For, for the last chapter and a half, almost, we have been talking about Xerxes, right? This selfish, power-hungry individual, right? The king of the Persians. Now we switch over to a Jewish man named Mordecai and his adopted daughter, who is really his younger cousin, Esther. Now, just a fun fact to throw in there. Mordecai's family, here at the bottom it says this, Mordecai's family came over into this area during the time of Daniel, during the Babylonian empire, they came over. And one of the Babylonian gods was named Marduk. This is actually who Mordecai is named after, a Babylonian god, Marduk. They would have said Marduka, right? But Mordecai, that's what we call him. And he lived in the city of Susa, okay? Here we start deep diving a little bit. 40 years earlier, okay, and I'm trying to let the Bible speak for the Bible. I'm not trying to read anything more into this except for what the Bible tells us about this. 40 years before this situation that Esther and, and Mordecai are about to get in, another Persian king, a guy named King Cyrus, gave permission to a guy named Nehemiah, which we have studied as a church if you've been here long enough, gave Nehemiah and all the Jewish people the opportunity to go back to their homeland, Jerusalem, and to rebuild their destroyed city. Both Ezra and Nehemiah mention in their books of the Bible that the Jews that remained in Susa remained there because they were more concerned about their comfort and well-being than they were about rebuilding the city of God. Mordecai was one of those individuals. Now, here's what, I'm, here's what I'm saying about this. And again, I'm gonna get to the whole, we need to be careful not to make harsh judgments. But, but let me bring this up. 
As we go through Esther, what I keep thinking in my brain as I study this book is, could this whole thing have been avoided if Mordecai wasn't in a place that he shouldn't have been in in the first place? That didn't blow anyone else's mind except for mine. When I studied that, I'm like, wow, that's amazing, right? And how many times in our lives do we call the pastor or get a hold of a friend or ask someone to pray for us because, quite frankly, we have found ourselves in a situation that we have put ourselves in? How many times have we all done that? People will call me or get a hold of me and they'll say, Corey, pray for me. I just, I, just, I just had this situation with my wife. I don't know how it happened. I started talking to this young lady at work and we exchanged numbers and we went out to lunch and we eventually got dinner. We eventually went on a date. I eventually slept with this woman and cheated on my wife. I don't know how it happened. And I'm like, really, you don't? You don't know how that happened? You were in a place that you should have never been in. And if you wouldn't have been in that place, this wouldn't have happened. How many times do we put ourselves in circumstances and in places, bad things happen, and we go, God, why? And he's like, I didn't want you to be there. And I think we're seeing something like that in the book of Esther. Also, just because a path is easier doesn't mean that it's better. That's something worth remembering. Just because that path is easier does not mean that it's the path we should walk down. Another interesting thing we see is that Esther is the only person in the book of Esther where we hear both of her names, her Jewish name, which is Hadassah, and her non-Jewish name, her Gentile name, Esther. This is the only person in this book that we hear this of. And so why is that? Why is that important? And some theologians believe that we learn both of her names because this is a young girl, again, probably 14 years old or so. This is a young woman who is living, kind of, kind of being pulled by two different worlds. She is a Jew, which means she is one of the chosen people of God. She knows her heritage, we, we think, right? Who knows how much has not been told to her. But she knows who she is in God. She understands who the real God is. And there's this desire to want to honor that. She's also, as the book says, an extremely attractive young woman who knows that she can advance in the world by her appearances. So we find this young woman kind of trapped between these two things, pulled in two directions. And we know a lot of people like that. And maybe we have been in a position where we have felt like that. So because Esther is an extremely attractive young woman, one of Xerxes' eunuchs, Haggai, sees her and, and gathers her. Now, this is where I have a problem with some of the Lifetime movies and the things that kind of make this this romantic story. We wouldn't use the word gather in our day and age. We would say trafficked, kidnapped. These were a bunch of teenage girls who were pulled out of their homes for no other reason but to lose their virginity to a sex-hungry king. That's what this situation was. It was vile, it was crass, it was disgusting. So this woman was pulled out of her home because of her looks and was going to be given this, uh, this opportunity to sleep with a much older king who had different beliefs and was just an awful person. So Esther gets pulled into this situation and it says that she pleased Haggai or Hegai. And this, this is nothing sexual here, nothing sexual. This was a eunuch, so we know it was nothing sexual. What we learn here though, is not only was Esther a very physically attractive woman, she was obviously a good people person. She was charismatic. She was people smart. That's what I, well, that's what I call people like this. And, and she knew how to talk to people, how to win you know, influence and, and, and build friendships. She was just good with people. 
So she, she got thrown into this culture. She knew how to kind of work the culture, if you will. And, and all of this is by the instruction of Mordecai. And she gained favor, but it was at the price of concealing who she was in God. She gained favor in the world, but she had to conceal her ethnicity and her faith to get that favor. So again, come on, clicker. Again, I wanna show her some grace because A, she was probably only about 14 years old and B, she was just doing everything her adopted father told her to do. And now I have to show Mordecai a little bit of grace too, because I have a girl that's about to be 14 years old. And if she was in threat of losing her life, I'm not saying I would do this, but I would be tempted for her uh, to, to tell her to, to lie or to conceal things about herself in order to keep her safe. That's probably why Mordecai did that. Hey, listen, don't bring up your faith. Don't bring up your ethnicity. Just keep that quiet. And I'm sure there were good intentions in that. And we can argue whether that's right or wrong to do that. So Mordecai, every day, because I think he genuinely cared about Esther, would, would walk around the, the courtyard around the temple. And he had access because more than likely Mordecai worked for the government. He worked for the Persian Empire. So he would walk around the courtyard hoping to hear some gossip about Esther, hopefully hearing how she was, how everything was going during this year-long beautification uh, preparation process that she was going through. And so at the end of this part that I just read to you, it's kind of weird. It switches gears and it talks more detail as to what this year-long preparation process looked like. This would have been an extensive preparation basically to make sure that these women were as attractive as possible when they had sex with the king. So they would go through six months of how to take care of their skin, right, with different oils, how to put on makeup. And when they would finally go see the king, right, when they would have their night to go impress the king and hopefully be named queen, they would get to pick whatever they wanted to adorn their bodies to hopefully be more attractive to the king. And if they were eventually chosen as the queen, they still wouldn't have like this intimate loving relationship with the king like the movies show you. It says that they would have still been off on the other side of the palace and they would be summoned by the king basically whenever he wanted to have casual sex with him. So this is what they were in the middle of this very awful situation. And it sounds pretty twisted, doesn't it? Just, just put your seatbelts on for a second and try to imagine this with me. Imagine a society, imagine if you will, a society in which people are objectified, people are expendable, sex is casual and loveless. Imagine a society where people are driven by their personal desires and appetites and where people's values are based on how they look and in their performance. Imagine such a twisted society as that. Because you know what happens and you're seeing it right now in your culture. Whenever godlessness rises, the value of people declines. The largest demographic of people that are growing right now at an exponential rate in the United States and in the Western world in general are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, non-believers, right? Atheists, that is the fastest growing demographic in the United States right now. And Christianity is absolutely plummeting. When I spoke at the Men's Summit, right now between men and women, 29%, 29% of people in the United States, both men and women, go to church on average only once a month. 
So this isn't like faithful attendance where people are serving and getting involved. Less than 30% in this one nation under God, which is completely a bogus statement, 29% of the population in the United States goes to church 12 times a year. That's, that's it. And so what happens in a society where faithlessness and godlessness rises, the value of people drops. And I'm not just talking about things like abortion and murder. I'm talking about we live in a society that gets a kick out of watching YouTube videos about elderly people getting sucker punched in subways. We live in a society that loves watching body cam footage of people getting shot in the streets. We live in a society that gets a kick out of people running off the road and crashing and fist fighting because of road rage. And we don't look at people as humans made in the image of God. We look at them as some kind of form of entertainment for me while I'm bored at work. That's what we have done. We have devalued human life on every level, okay? So Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Hegai, Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all of the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all of his officials and staff. It was Esther's party, Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. Okay. So I'm being, again, honest with you. I have studied several commentaries and there are two kind of big extremes. I think we need to find a place in the middle, but there are two big extremes on how to view Esther. One extreme I think is putting on this kind of like rose shaded lens and looking at everyone like they're perfect and superhuman. And you know, Esther just comes in and she has this beautiful romantic night with the king and changes him and she did everything right and everything's gonna be okay. And quite frankly, guys, the Bible just does not say that. We're gonna see that in the next part, that that's not what happened. But some people read this and they say, well, she denied taking anything from, from the, the harem because she was gonna go in with her natural beauty and simplicity and humility. And I think that's a very one-dimensional way to look at this story, okay? The other extreme of this, and one of the books that I'm reading, and quite honestly, I think this book goes way too far. I think it paints Esther in way too negative of a light. I don't agree with it. The other take that some people have is that Esther 100% knew what she was doing. She was very smart. She was very people smart. She was very beautiful. She knew how to play the game. She played it well. And she basically um, earned her way in to, to being the queen by, by playing this game. And so she was basically a young child, 14, who got allured and sucked into this culture. And some of the things, and this is just food for thought, so we can say, well, gosh, you know, like Corey, her life was at stake. If she would have told everyone who she was, she would have lost her life. Go back a couple of books of the Bible to the book of Daniel, where you had three young men in a very similar situation where they were given the choice to either bow down to a king or get thrown into a furnace. And they said, I guess you got to throw us in a furnace. 
And so it's interesting. I think we have to come to this place somewhere in the middle. And here's the other side of this. The people in the Old Testament didn't have access to the Holy Spirit the way we have access to it today. So we have to show a little bit of grace. We have to show a little bit of empathy. When I step back from this and I'm like, well, I wouldn't have done it that way, Mordecai, and I wouldn't have let my daughter do this, Esther. Man, I got a 14-year-old daughter, and I'm not sure what I would do, if you want me to be honest, if her life was put in jeopardy like that. This was a young, exiled woman who was abducted, gathered, abducted from her home, put into a pagan king's uh, uh, palace, and, and set up to do awful, atrocious things, and then let's talk about the other side. There probably was a little tinge of the fact that she goes, wow, I'm gonna get to live in the palace. Wow, I'm gonna eat whatever I want and have the best beauty products and I might even be queen over the, the, the most powerful empire in the world. Here's the point though. The point is not for us to step back and judge Esther and, Ma and, and Mordecai. It's not to step back and talk about how much more holy we are than they. It is to, to, to read the story, to understand these were real humans. And just like us, these people were prone to making mistakes just like we are. These people were prone to sometimes compromising in tough situations just like we are. We're also going to see that when we humble ourselves and trust God, we are also all recipients of God's grace and that God can use even our mistakes if we're humble and he can turn those and use those for his good and for our good and for the kingdom's good. So we are to step back from this, not in judgment, but to learn these huge lessons. And so Esther becomes queen, right? She gets crowned, they have another party, which looks dramatically different than the party in chapter one. And again, this isn't because the, the, the king is now this loving guy that's just in love with her. I'm not trying to be crass. When it says he loved her more than the other virgins, it probably means he loved having sex with her more than he liked having sex with all these other women. So she gets the crown, she becomes the new queen. They have a big party, unlike chapter one, all the men and women are in the same room and the king goes, I'm gonna give everyone a tax cut and I'm gonna give you, you know, I'm gonna throw out some money to everyone and look, look how happy I am, look at my bride, look at the solidarity, look, look, there's nothing wrong with the Persian empire, everything's okay. So it was probably more of a political stunt than anything else. Remember, he had just lost some battles, he just probably killed his previous wife. And so now he's saying, look, everything's okay, right? Everything's good. Well, obviously not everyone thought it was good because some people wanted to kill the king. And that leads to the next part. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged in the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. So here's how we know 
that the Lifetime movies about Esther are not 100% accurate, when they make it look like this romantic thing, we learn immediately after that Esther is crowned that they had a second gathering of virgins for the king. What we learn from that is it wasn't just this, you know, uh, uh, relationship that he had with Esther. He still wanted to have sexually perverse relationships with all kinds of virgin teenage girls from around the kingdom. During this second gathering of virgins for the king to have sex with, Mordecai was hanging out in the royal courtyard. Again, he was more than likely an employee of the government and he had access to Esther. He could get in touch with her. He could relay word to her and, and no one knew that they were related yet, but they could stay in contact. So one of these days when, when Mordecai was hanging out in the royal court, you know, he's probably just on his break playing Candy Crush or something out there in front of the palace. He's hanging out. And he, hears over, uh, he, he overhears two of the guards of the front door to the palace talking about a conspiracy to kill the king. And so because Mordecai had access to Esther, the queen, he could get the word to her and then she could tell the king. Now, we really don't know why these guys wanted to kill him. You could assume it was because they didn't have trust in his leadership anymore. Persia had lost some battles to, to the Greeks. Um, maybe they saw some financial problems, some other issues, but whatever it was, there was a plot to kill the king and Mordecai thwarted the plot. So they heard about it, they investigated it, they found out that these men were trying to kill the king and they hung them in the gallows. This is important, this is a little bit of foreshadowing. It says that all of this was recorded in the historical records for the king. The reason why that's important is what you're gonna see is in next chapter is Mordecai is not honored for what he did until much later. Someone else is going to be honored before him and that's gonna to lead to a whole slew of problems. But later on, the king is gonna see, oh, wait a second, Mordecai saved my life one time. I need a reward for him for that. And that happens later on in the story, okay? So let's step back for a second from this 2,500 year old book that we're reading right now. Let's step back and let's see if we can pull some things from chapter two that apply to our culture, us as individuals today. The first one that I picked up on was this. Like Xerxes, we often try to pacify discontentment with worldly pleasures. That can be drugs, that can be drinking, that can be pornography, that can be sex, that can be food, that can be just distraction, that can be all kinds of different things. But what happens is when we try to just pacify discontentment versus going to God that can give us contentment, all it does is lead us to more discontentment. It just makes it worse. The reason why it makes it worse, and there's a lot of us in this room that can testify to this, is sin has an insatiable appetite. As Christians, we have to understand we're not just meant to like manage sin. We can't just keep this little sin over here that we'll dabble in every once in a while when we feel a little lonely or depressed or sad or anxious. We have to let God eradicate that. We have to let God pull that root up because sin is never satisfied with just a little bit of you, it wants all of you. Sin is like a cancer. It will eventually destroy you, it will destroy your marriage, your friendship, your family, it, it, because the devil comes to steal, kill, destroy. And so the point is this, 
no amount of selfish pursuit of pleasure will fill the void in your life of fulfillment. You have to get that from God. No amount. That's why, you know, those of us who have history of drug abuse and stuff, it was no bump of cocaine that just, okay, that's enough. That's all I ever need, right? It's not just looking at pornography one time and being like, I am sexually fulfilled now. That is not the way it works. It becomes an addiction. It becomes destruction because sin's appetite is never fulfilled. It has to destroy what it gets a hold of, okay? We have to understand that. Sin has an insatiable appetite. We have to eradicate it. We have to deal with it. Okay. Another thing we talked about today quite a bit is compromise. We see that Mordecai and Esther compromised who they were to a certain extent. So here's the thing. Even if you and I don't blatantly get into sin, sinful desires, all of us, all of us, all of us at times have concealed or suppressed our faith in order to avoid uncomfortable situations. We have a tendency to do that, right? We have a tendency in the office and in, the, in, in school or wherever we are to sometimes suppress what our beliefs are. An example, right? Someone comes up to you at work or at the coffee shop or whatever and they say, hey, Corey, I do these things. Do you think that's a sin? Uh, God loves you. I just think God loves you. You know what I think that is? That is chicken excrement, right? <laughs> Here's the thing. Whenever we cower, whenever we cower from the truth like that, it's not because we love that person so much, it's because we care about what that person thinks about us. We're gonna be honest in, this morning, in here this morning, correct? And let me tell you the danger in backing down from the truth. The danger from backing down the truth is the Bible says that if you deny me on earth, God will deny you in heaven. That's a very important verse. It's a very important scripture. So. Though we are to tell the truth, we can do this in a loving manner. So if someone comes up to me and says, Corey, what do you think about this? My answer is typically, my thoughts are irrelevant, right? Because I'm fallible, I'm, I'm, I'm a human. I can show you what the Bible says about that, and because I trust in God, I follow what this says, regardless of how I feel. Amen. That's what I will tell people to do. Now here's why the Bible is so important. We live in extremely confusing times. In America, we think, and even in the church, we think if so-and-so is nice, then they must be good. And if they're good by my standards, then how can they be punished by God? And that's not biblically accurate. So we are often confused. Here's the other thing. We are often allured by our society. Social media, right? You watch that 15 second clip on your reels on Facebook, it's someone at the beach just having a good time and just kind of sporadically smiling as they're walking. And you don't see the fact that it took 25 hours to get that clip and edit that and kind of make this fantasy look like it just kind of casually happened. It's not real, guys. The other thing we see is that, is that all the time, you know, your friends and your social media, they say, well, you know, look, you Christians are so restricted. We're out here on Friday night and we're partying and we're staying up late and we're getting, you know, we're having sex with people and we're getting drunk and we're just free. And they don't tell you about the STD that they contracted. Amen. They don't tell you about the unwanted pregnancy. Yep. They don't tell you about the deep psychological effects when we objectify women and treat them like they're a piece of property. They don't talk about the hurt and the insecurity. You don't see that side of it, which is the majority of it, the ramifications of that. So listen, we have to be careful not to compromise. 
what the Word of God says. We have to hold on to this, right? This is how we find peace. This is how we find contentment. We also have to understand this. We're all going to make bad choices at times. That does not, listen, that does not give us a license to do that. It doesn't mean that we should continue to make bad choices or continue to compromise, but all of us in times of weakness are gonna compromise on some level. But if we will humble ourselves and say, God, I am so sorry that I compromised. I'm so sorry that I made this decision knowing that I shouldn't have made it. If we will humble ourselves, if we will ask God to forgive us, if we will put our trust in God versus our trust in us, he will forgive and he shows grace. Not only that, not only does he forgive and show grace, we're gonna see in the book of Esther, even though I believe Mordecai and Esther compromised, even though I don't think Mordecai's family should have ever been in this city, God takes a situation that we might've made the mess in, and if we will humble ourselves, he flips it and even uses those things for good. Amen. Romans 8, 28. But we have to humble ourselves and seek God's face, even when we've done dumb things. We need to come to our senses and go back to him. Yes. Now again, this is me, this is Corey. This is what I'm learning from the book of Esther so far. I am also learning that it is very easy for me to read these stories and to look at these people and to say, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. Oh, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have told my 14 year old to do this. I would have gone to my death instantly. And I can stand back and I can be very judgmental of all this. And it is easy, not only to judge Mordecai and Esther, it's very easy for us as Christians to step back and look at the world and go, oh, those people are so bad, they're so gross, they're so awful, I can't believe they made these decisions. And listen, how many times have we made compromises in our faith, not because we were going to face death, but because we might lose a little thumbs up on Facebook? Very easy for us to judge these people. I've never been in a situation like this. I've never had my 14-year-old abducted. I've never had to worry about those kinds of things. So this is what Corey is learning. This is very important. Listen, we cannot compromise the truth. You cannot. If you're a Christian in this room, listen to me for a second. You cannot compromise the truth. Regardless if you're doing it in the name of I love this person or regardless if you, whatever reason you're tempted to compromise, you cannot compromise because again, the word says, if we deny him here, he denies us in eternity. So we cannot do that. That is, that is, that is off the table. But though I am not to compromise my beliefs, I must also learn to look at people the best of my abilities like God looks at them with, with empathy, with grace, with mercy, because it is only by, listen, I'm gonna say it about 10 more times because I always get taken way out of context when I say things like this. Just because God loves someone doesn't mean that that person is saved. Just, be, just because I love someone doesn't mean that I condone what they're doing. I can tell them the truth. I can tell them that truth in love, right? I'm not condoning their actions, but I'm gonna tell you, it is only by getting to know people, it is only by hearing their stories, by loving them, by showing them kindness, showing them grace, showing them mercy, that we will hopefully, it's not up to us, it's up to them and God drawing them, but hopefully that love and that tenderness will direct them towards a loving father that will show them the truth and put them on the right path. But until we start treating people 
and loving people like God loves us. Because it says in Romans chapter nine that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. And we are to be similar in that matter, right? That's why Jesus says, when he was asked, what is the greatest command? He says, well, love God. And, he's, and he added, he wasn't asked what the second one was, but Jesus added, he said, and the second one is very similar to the first. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, yes. right? Let me tell you a story real quick. And again, I'm gonna clarify about 15 more times that I don't agree with what this person was doing. And I'm gonna be very careful how I tell this story too, because I care about this individual and I just wanna, I don't wanna breach trust. Uh, there was a time, and I won't even tell you how long ago, that, that an individual came into my office and they were greatly considering gender reassignment surgery. They came in and they, they told me about this and you know, I, I kind of hid, you know, hid my surprise and I just listened and I asked questions and, and they asked point blank, do you agree with this? And I said, no, I'm gonna say that again before I get nasty emails from you guys that are misconstruing what I'm saying. I 100% disagree with, with what they were thinking about doing. But I asked questions. And one of the questions I asked was, what brought you to the point where you want to change your gender? But biologically, change to the you know, most you can your gender. And this individual told me a story, and I'm gonna be very vague, but I hope you understand what I'm getting at, that there was years of very, very intense trauma. Things that would, that, that would make your skin crawl, awful, horrible things that happened to this individual. And I sat there in my office and I bawled. I cried, that kind of crying to where you, you can't hardly catch your breath. And this person was crying and we were weeping. And you know, in that moment, I could have stepped back and go, this is right and this is wrong and you're gonna be damned to eternal hellfire if you do this. And I could have yelled and I could have pushed down. But instead, I just wanted to hold this individual. And I told them multiple times that I do not agree with this. I believe this is wrong. This is not the path to go. But in that moment, I saw them like I, please understand, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I believe that God gave me his eyes. And I thought about all the sin I had committed in my own life. And when my savior held and embraced me and saved my soul. Now, hold on. I have no control over the decisions that that individual made, but I had every control on how I approached that situation. Yes. And the only possible way, and do I know what this individual is gonna do? I do not know what they're going to do in the future. But the only way that we can direct people to a God of love is we must love. That, I'm gonna say it again, that doesn't mean that we condone sin. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to what the Bible says is right and wrong. That is not what I'm telling you today. But when Jesus sat down next to a promiscuous woman by a well in the downtown area where he was, he didn't call her a whore, he didn't call her a slut, he didn't push her down. He said, do you know that there is something better than the worldly pleasures that you've yes. been seeking? That's how he approached her. And listen, that's how we are to approach people. Because God knows some evil has run through this mind. God knows that evil has come out of these appendages. God knows that I've done some awful things too. Grace, mercy, and listen, when you start to hear people's stories, it starts to turn a lot of light bulbs on. And though I do not agree, I sat back and I went, now I can, I can kind of understand why you went down the road you went down. I don't agree with that road. Yes. 
but I see why one would choose that road. I, I, I understand. Grace, mercy, love, empathy. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and um, maybe you are not a believer or maybe you're a new believer and you got questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Jonathan is up here. He does all of our discipleship process. If you have any questions for Jonathan, <clears throat> he'd love to talk with you, okay? I'm not trying to, 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 to out him or pick on him, but he was not a Christian until his college years. And um, if you wanted to ask him about what, what, what helped you know, push him over the edge and having faith versus not having faith, uh, he's an open book. He'd love to talk with you. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, please don't, don't, don't let pride or, or embarrassment or anything like that stop you from going up here and just getting, getting prayer for whatever you might have going on in your life. The last thing is this, all the way around this room, all the way around where we see a lamp on a table, and if you're sitting in the middle, there are disposable cups of bread and wine, which is the communion. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone who asks God to forgive them of their sins, you're welcome to take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine. And what that is, is a simple reminder that Jesus found us when we were at our ugliest, our worst, our most defiant. And he loved us. He doesn't condone our sin, but he loves us so much that he gives us freedom from that sin, from the ramification of that sin, forgiveness of that sin. And because God has been so gracious with us, we are to go out into this very dark, confused, hostile world, and we are to be gracious with others. Father, Lord, we love you. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you would send your son to die on a cross for a sinner like me, for people who have made mistakes, people who have done atrocious things, God, that if we will just humble ourselves, God, you show mercy. Father, let us be people that go out into this world, your ambassadors, your light, God, and let us love people. Don't let us back down from the truth, Father. We cannot compromise the truth, but Lord, let us share that truth in such a peaceful, loving manner, confident, Lord, that you will touch people's hearts. If we will build the bridge, God, that you will touch people's hearts. We love you, Father. We thank you. Be with everyone in this room until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have a good rest of your Sunday.